Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast and for many of you, welcome to a new liturgical year. This is, uh, the reading for today is the beginning of year C in the uh, three-year cycle of Sunday readings. So we're beginning year C with today's reading and it's a really, really difficult one for many reasons. This is a difficult passage in terms of what the text is saying. Scholars have different opinions about it. Now, what we're looking at today, you probably may have already heard this during the week. If you've been listening to the weekday readings, what we have today is uh, chunks of some of the weekday readings from this week that have been put together. So, not only is this a difficult passage uh, because scholars disagree about how to interpret it, but it's also cut out various verses um, that are important for the whole context. So, it can be hard to sort of follow the flow of today's reading because there are some verses cut out, but we're going to do our best. So, Luke chapter 21, verses 25 to 28, and then 34 to 36. Jesus said to his disciples, There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, on earth nations in agony, bewildered by the clamor of the ocean and its waves, men dying of fear as they await what menaces the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken." And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand erect, hold your heads high, because your liberation is near at hand. Watch yourselves, or your hearts will be coarsened with debauchery and drunkenness and the cares of life, and that day will be sprung on you suddenly, like a trap. For it will come down on every living man on the face of the earth. Stay awake, praying at all times for the strength to survive all that is going to happen and to stand with confidence before the Son of Man. So a difficult passage today. There's lots of aspects of this which still leave questions. Even if you think you've got the right interpretation, there's still some questions where things don't quite uh, fit exactly. So What's the context of this? Jesus is in Jerusalem for the last week of his life, and he's just cleansed the temple, and now he's teaching in the temple. He's teaching his disciples here. That's an important thing to keep in mind. He's speaking to Christians in Jerusalem about what's going to happen in the years leading up to the destruction of the temple. Now, Jesus, up until this is all one long discourse, and up until now, he's been giving some very specific graphic prophecies about how the Romans will surround Jerusalem. And he's told his followers, his Christian disciples, that when they see these things happen, they need to get out of Jerusalem as soon as they see the Romans coming. He's given them quite specific prophecies and warnings about what will happen in the years leading up to 70 AD. So uh, you can hear all of those, uh, those leading up two verses, verses 20 to 24, on Thursday of week 34 in Ordinary Time. This whole speech is designed to be read at once, so today it might seem a little bit disjointed because we only have part of it. Now, it's worth pointing out that sometimes scholars, in fact, a lot of scholars will say that what we have here is called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, But it's interesting because although what we have here in Luke, uh, when uh, when it's discussed in Matthew and Mark, it is clearly part of the Olivet Discourse there, and Jesus gives it on the Mount of Olives. Well, here in Luke, Luke has actually split the speech into two. He's got the first half, which has already been given in actually chapter 17 of Luke, and now we have uh, the second half, and it's not on the Mount of Olives, it's in the temple. So that's another complicating factor here. Is this the same 
Olivet Discourse that Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives, uh, because when you look at the Mount of Olives Discourse in the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, clearly some of it seems to be pointing to the actual second coming. But here, the way Luke talks about this one is you could say it all sounds like it's going to be fulfilled in the middle coming in 70 AD. You've probably heard us talk about the middle coming in the podcast before. So there is a question here about, is this the Olivet Discourse? Because in a way, I think that if this, if what we have here today in Luke is not the Olivet Discourse, it actually solves a lot of problems. But there is scholarly disagreement about how many times did Jesus give this speech? Um, Has Luke broken it up into two for thematic reasons? There's all sorts of interesting discussions there. First thing we should say before we dive into the text, scholars have a lot of different views about how to interpret this. Some even good Catholic scholars would say that this has uh, all been fulfilled in 70 AD. Some would say it's all going to happen in the future at the second coming. I think the evidence supports it being fulfilled in 70 AD. I think what Jesus speaks about here in this speech is mostly about 70 AD, but scholars do have different opinions and there is no official Catholic opinion on this. So uh, you're free to study the text yourself and come to your own conclusions. The reason, the main reason that I think most of what Jesus says here is fulfilled in 70 AD is because in verse 32, he actually says, that's not in today's reading because it's been cut out, but in verse 32, he says, this generation shall not pass away until all has taken place. So that would strongly seem to suggest that he's talking to his original audience, telling them that they will see all these things happen. And indeed, these things did happen in 70 AD. Then we get to the next section of this text, which begins a section which uses highly stylized Jewish apocalyptic language. This is when Jesus starts to talk about the moon turning to blood, the stars falling, the heavens will be shaken. Many people, when we hear this, we think it's talking about the second coming, as in a literal shaking of the heavens, as in the the universe is going to be destroyed and the, the moon's going to fall. And we literally think of, you know, cosmic phenomenon. It could be read that way, but it doesn't need to be read that way. And that's certainly not how Jews would have read it. Because if you look at the Old Testament, very similar language is used in other places in the Old Testament, and that is not referring to the end of the world. For the Jews... The destruction of the temple signaled the end of the first age. The Jews at the time believed that there were two great ages in the world. This sort of first age and then the messianic age. So when Jesus here talks about these cataclysmic signs, they probably would have understood that to mean that Jesus is predicting the end of the first age, which indeed occurred with the destruction of the of Jerusalem. So when Jesus has this language of then the end will come, the end is coming, they probably would have seen it as the end, as in the end of the covenant age, the end of the of the temple age. We find it hard to see that because we're so used to hearing interpretations that make it seem as though Jesus is talking about a catacly- cataclysmic second coming, but that's not how the first century audience would have understood this language. Let's get into this a bit. He first says, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. This is actually a common Jewish way of describing the falling and shaking of political powers and leaders. Sun and moon and stars were sometimes words that were used to describe figures, figures of authority on earth. It was not meant to be taken as literal cosmological changes. When Jesus says there'll be signs in the sun and moon and stars, it probably means something about the leadership of Israel is going to start changing and there will be great changes in that regard. 
It's similar to the language that Isaiah used predicting the destruction of Babylon. Here's what he says in Isaiah chapter 13 in the Old Testament. God says this about the destruction of Babylon. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. In context, that's clearly about the destruction of Babylon. None of those things literally happened. The earth did not literally shake when Babylon was destroyed. The moon did not stop uh, sending its light. So clearly, these are metaphors to mean there'll be great changes in the leadership of that nation. Jesus means the same thing here. He continues, On earth, nations will be in agony, bewildered by the clamor of the ocean and its waves. Now, in the Bible, the ocean is commonly used metaphor to mean the Gentiles. The ocean, and this is even true in the book of Revelation, the ocean basically means Gentile areas. When Jesus here says nations will be in agony, they'll be bewildered by the power of the ocean and its waves, it's probably a reference to the raw power of the Romans. The nations will be completely powerless at the mighty hand of the Roman Empire in the coming years leading up to 70 AD, and indeed that's exactly what happened. Rome became very powerful and the nations were subjugated by Rome. Jesus says, men dying of fear as they await what menaces the world. Now here Jesus does use the word world rather than land. Remember, land earlier meant the area of Israel, but here he actually says world. For this reason, some people think he's now talking about the entire world at the second coming. It's much more reasonable to think of world, meaning the entire Roman Empire. That's the way that that word was used at that time. So when Jesus here says, men dying of fear as they await what menaces the world. It basically means the entire Roman Empire will sense that a great destruction is about to occur. There'll be massive upheavals all across the Roman Empire and people will be very anxious about what's going on. Jesus says, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Again, we have this language of powers of heaven. It's probably a reference to the fact that many leaders, both Jewish and Gentile, will lose their positions at this time. And that's certainly what happened. If you want to see more about this, if you, have a, if you have a look at the book of Revelation where it talks about the stars falling from heaven, it's basically the same idea that many leaders will be changed and shaken and the leadership structures will fall apart. That seems to be the idea here that Jesus is talking about. Empires will fall. Verse 27, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Notice the word then. So Jesus says that all of these signs, the shaking of the heavens, the changing of leadership, all of that happens first. And then the sign of the son of man will come in a cloud with power and great glory. And again, notice the word they. Jesus says they will see the son of man coming. Jesus here presumes that his disciples won't see it coming. Instead, it will be they, the people in general. Here we have a strong hint that it's not a reference to the second coming. Because we believe at the second coming, all people will see that, including Christians. But here Jesus says they, which is interesting. What does this phrase mean? The son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When we hear this, we actually visualize Jesus coming down from heaven to earth. That's what we've been trained to think. That's probably not the right interpretation. This phrase coming on the cloud with power and great glory God actually does this several times in the Old Testament. This language of God coming on a cloud is used a lot in the Old Testament, and it's always used in reference to judgment. 
and it's always used in connection with what in the Old Testament is called the day of the Lord. So Babylon has a day of the Lord where God comes on the clouds in judgment, destroys Babylon. Israel has a couple of days of the Lord in the Old Testament when God judges Israel. So this phrase coming on the cloud probably refers to judgment. It's not literally, you won't literally be able to see Jesus coming on a cloud to earth. That's not the idea. In fact, it's probably not Jesus coming from heaven to earth at all. All it says is that Jesus will come on a cloud. That's all the phrase says. It doesn't tell us where he's coming from or where he's going. Notice that it just says he's going to come on a cloud. The son of man, the Messiah will come on a cloud. The Old Testament background for this is Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14. If you read that passage, there in Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision of the Son of Man, the Messiah, and there the Son of Man is specifically described as coming to God on clouds. It actually uses that language. He, the Son of Man comes to God on clouds. So the actual the image is not of the Son of Man coming to earth. It's coming deeper into heaven to God. He's coming to the throne of the Father to be presented with his kingdom. I'd encourage you to study Daniel chapter 7. Have a look at that prophecy where it shows that one day the Son of Man will be presented to the Father so that the Son of Man can be given a kingdom. Jesus here says that this day is coming when the Son of Man, the Messiah, will go to the throne of the Father and be presented with the kingdom. When does this happen? Well, I think we can make a strong case theologically and biblically that Jesus is presented with his kingdom. He comes to the Father to be presented in 70 AD. In heaven, that's what's occurring theologically, and on earth, that is shown as the destruction of Jerusalem and God judging Jerusalem. So on earth, they see the coming of the Son of Man. What they see is the destruction of Jerusalem. That they would have interpreted that to be, certainly the Christians would have understood that to be the coming of the Son of Man in judgment and great power as he destroys Jerusalem. So in heaven, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is being presented to the Father, and the Father is presenting the Son with a kingdom, and that is playing out on earth as the destruction of Jerusalem. If that seems a bit strange, have a look at the book of Revelation. There's constantly this theme of things on uh, things in heaven affecting things on earth. And they're sort of both sides of the same coin of things that are happening theologically. What does it all mean? It means that when Jerusalem is destroyed, the old covenant is destroyed too. That's the main theological thing that we're supposed to take away from why God destroys the temple. When Jerusalem is destroyed, particularly the temple, the old covenant is gone. The new covenant and the church begins and Jesus' kingdom, the church, begins in its fullness. So once the old covenant is cleared out of the way, the New Testament church is free to thrive. That's the whole thing that God is trying to do. He's clearing away the old stuff, making way for the growth of the the church. This whole event, the 70 AD destruction of the temple, it's all about publicly transitioning to the new kingdom of God. And when the temple is destroyed, people on earth, particularly Christians, would understand this to be the coming of the Son of Man. That is the moment at which God gives the Messiah the kingdom. It's when the Messiah and his people are vindicated. Now, after it's worth looking at what other scholars have said here. So the scholar David Palm has sort of reworked the translation here. He's looked at the Greek and he's tried to make this as clear as possible. And here's his summary of what he thinks the Greek is saying in this section. He says, then the tribes of the land will see in the destruction of Jerusalem an unmistakable sign that the rejected Son of Man is in heaven enthroned. They will mourn. 
the Son of Man will come in glory to the throne of God. So that's a really interesting translation there, and it basically confirms what we've been saying here about the meaning of 70 AD and what is occurring in heaven. I know this is a very different interpretation to what many of you may have heard, particularly if you're from the Protestant world like I am, and I'd encourage you to really dig into these prophetic texts and get a good commentary to help you out as well. And I think you'll start to see that a lot of this is best understood theologically and biblically as pointing to things that occurred in 70 AD. The last thing Jesus says in verse 28 is, when these things begin to take place, stand erect, or you can translate that, look up. Hold your heads high, raise your heads. It seems to carry this idea of have confidence that God will vindicate you. Remember, he's speaking to Christians. He says, when you see these things happening, when you see the temple being destroyed, have confidence that God will vindicate you. And he says, because your liberation is near at hand. Or you can translate that, your redemption is drawing near. So when Jesus comes in 70 AD, the teaching here is that it will be judgment for some, for the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, but it will be redemption for the Christians. They will be vindicated. The church can then flourish without being persecuted as much. Jesus' overall message here in this speech is that things are going to be difficult. He's saying this to the Christian followers, but he tells them they must persevere. It's all leading up to the triumph of the Messianic kingdom and the passing away of the Old Covenant. So the lectionary now skips over verses 29 to 33, and that's when Jesus gives the parable of the fig tree. And that's when he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. So he sort of concludes that section uh, by telling his disciples they need to be on the lookout for those signs. And you can hear that on Friday of week 34 in Ordinary Time, which you might have actually heard in the last couple of days. So we're moving on now to verses 34 to 36. And here I think it gets quite complicated for um, biblical interpreters because in... Matthew and Mark, Jesus does go on to say the exact same things here at this point, um, and he's going to talk about the need for being watchful and making sure that you're carrying out your responsibilities well. But there's a difference in Matthew and Mark, which is uh, Matthew and Mark's version, Jesus now has this interesting line when he says, but of that day or hour, no one knows. So it's almost like Jesus transitions at this point into talking about the second coming, because he sort of seems to be shifting the subject to the second coming, that day or hour, in contrast to AD 70 that he has been talking about. So in Matthew and Mark, when we look at this passage, that's how we take it. We take it that from this point on, Jesus is now talking about the second coming. But in Luke's version, Jesus doesn't actually say that. He doesn't say on that day or hour. He just gives the parable of the fig tree and then just keeps right uh, keeps going right through to his disciples, telling them that they need to be watchful. So we're going to take Luke's text as it is, and we're going to assume that Jesus here is continuing to speak about 70 AD in this particular speech. And so the warnings he's about to give his disciples are immediate warnings for them. Now, of course, what he says to his disciples here about the need to carry, carry out your responsibilities and be watchful for Jesus' return, certainly that applies to us today. But it seems that the way Luke presents it here is Jesus is telling his immediate disciples about uh, their responsibilities in the lead up to 70 AD. So let's keep that in mind. Verse 34, Jesus said to his disciples, Notice the audience, he's speaking to those who are already his disciples, and specifically, it's probably mostly his apostles, those who are going to be leading Christians in the church. 
He says to them, watch yourselves, or you can translate that, take heed to yourselves. Jesus here warns his disciples that if they want to be part of the group that avoids the destruction of Jerusalem, they need to monitor themselves to ensure they stay focused on the kingdom. They need to watch themselves. This is a theme all throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has already highlighted the need for vigilance to his disciples earlier on. If you look at chapter 9, verse 32, chapter 12, verse 37, and then chapter 22, verses 45 to 46, there's similar warnings to vigilance. And Jesus here gets quite specific to his disciples. He says, watch yourselves or your hearts will be coarsened with debauchery. Another translation puts it, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. So it carries this idea of being focused on worldly activities, getting too caught up in the world. Remember the parable Jesus told earlier about the person who kept building bigger barns. He became so concerned with his worldly gain that he lost his soul. He lost, he forgot about spiritual things because he was so focused on worldly things. It's a similar theme here. Jesus tells his disciples, don't fall into that trap. And he lists further things in this list. He says, or your hearts will be coarsened with debauchery and drunkenness and the cares of life. So he's telling his disciples, he's warning them not to get carried away by worldly activities. He's telling them they need to stay focused on serving the kingdom and leading the church. Despite the persecutions they're going to have, there's going to be lots of temptation to fall away. And it's similar to what Jesus said earlier. Remember he said earlier that on that day, in the destruction of the temple, people will be eating and drinking and marrying like in the days of Noah. Jesus says that's what people in Jerusalem will be like. They'll just be going about their worldly lives. Jesus says, don't become like them. Some Jews in Jerusalem will be doing those things. They'll be caught up in the worldly aspects and they'll be caught off guard when God judges Jerusalem in 70 AD. But Jesus does not want his disciples to be in that group. And he says, and that day will be sprung on you suddenly like a trap. So the teaching here from Jesus is that those who are not paying attention to the signs leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, if they're not paying attention, they will not realize that the city will soon be destroyed and that God will come in judgment. If they're not paying attention to the signs, then they're not going to realize that the end is coming very soon and that God is coming to judge the city. It's going to come upon them, Jesus says here, like a trap, and it's similar to things Jesus says elsewhere about it being like a thief in the night. It's going to come suddenly. And we know from earlier in this sermon, in what form is the judgment going to come suddenly? It's going to come suddenly when the Roman armies all of a sudden appear and start attacking Jerusalem in around AD 60 uh, in that time period. And if you haven't listened to the previous days where we go through the earlier parts of the sermon, I strongly recommend you have a listen to those episodes uh, because what we hear today is the end of that extended sermon. Verse 35, for it will come down on every living man on the face of the earth. So Jesus says here, the judgment, the wrath of God, it's going to come down on every living man on the face of the earth. He's warning his disciples here. What does it mean here to say on the face of the earth? Some people see this as a reference to the second coming when God is going to judge the whole world. Maybe that's what face of the earth means. It could mean that, but I think in context, this is most likely a reference to the area of Judea, the land of Judea. Earlier in this sermon, Jesus specifically distinguished between land and world. And so here we have another word, earth, and that's probably synonymous with land. So the area called Judea. God is going to judge the land of Judea and Jerusalem. And we know that many people are going to be killed in Judea on that day of judgment. 
It's probably not a reference to the whole world. Jesus probably does not intend to teach that in 70 AD, the whole world will experience God's wrath, as in the whole globe. Because, think about it, he specifically tells the Christians to get out of Jerusalem and go to Perea because they're going to be safe in Perea. That's his instructions to them. So it wouldn't really make sense to say God's wrath is going to fall on the whole world because it's not going to fall on Perea. The Christians there did not experience God's wrath because they listened to Jesus' instructions. So most likely it's a reference to Judea only. Verse 36, he says to them, stay awake, or you can translate that, watch at all times. So it carries this idea of keeping watch during the night, keep looking out for signs. The early Christians, the disciples, Jesus says they must not fall asleep in their duties. They have to keep looking for the signs that Jesus has been talking about. So that when they see the signs, they know that Jesus is coming soon. Then he says this, stay awake, praying at all times for the strength to survive all that is going to happen. A better translation of this is not survive, it's the strength to escape all these things that will take place. So how can the Christians escape this judgment on Jerusalem? Well, if they follow Jesus' instructions earlier in the sermon, Jesus says, when you see these signs happening, when you see the army surround Jerusalem, you need to run to Berea. That's his instructions. Get out of Judea, go to Pella in Perea. If they do that, they will be spared. That's how they can survive all that is going to happen. And there's also an element here of the persecution they're going to experience, because even before the Romans start attacking the city, they're going to experience extreme persecution. And Jesus says, pray for the strength to survive that. Notice that Jesus says they have to pray for the strength to do it. It's not an automatic thing. It's not enough, even for the early Christians who knew Jesus personally. Jesus says it's not enough to know Jesus' teachings and to remember them. They still need to pray for God's strength to keep following Jesus' teachings. Otherwise, they could fall into worldliness. Now, if that's true for the early Christians, the leading disciples, if even they need to pray for the strength to follow Jesus' teachings and not to fall away from the faith, well, it's even more true for us today. We have to pray that we keep the faith. Jesus says, pray for the strength to survive all that is going to happen and to stand with confidence before the Son of Man. What's this reference here, to stand with confidence before the Son of Man? Well, Son of Man means the Messiah, so it's obviously some sort of judgment day that's in vision. I think this is best understood as a reference to the particular judgment, the judgment a person has when they die and come face to face with God straight after their death. When a person dies, they will stand before Jesus and give an account of their lives. That's a Catholic teaching. Here, Jesus tells his disciples that they have to keep doing God's will so that when they die and they go to see Jesus at the particular judgment, they can appear before Jesus with confidence because they've kept the faith and they did not give up despite persecution. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, pray that you, on that day, you would not have given up the faith and that Jesus will welcome you into eternal life. That's the idea. This teaching applies to all of us. One day we all are going to have to give an account for our lives at the particular judgment. And this theme of uh, giving an account of our lives, it's developed more later in the New Testament. So if you look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, 1 John 2, verse 28, they all have this idea about standing blameless before God. Now, some have taken this phrase to stand with confidence before the Son of Man. Some people envision this as the final judgment at the second coming, like in the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is clearly about the final judgment at the second coming. Maybe it does refer to that. It could be taken that way. Maybe it is the final judgment scene. But 
Not necessarily, and I think it, it's probably best understood more as a particular judgment. Jesus probably did not envision that the final judgment would occur in 70 AD. I think in Jesus' mind, he knew that there was going to be a middle coming and then a later second coming at the end of time. He probably doesn't want his disciples to think that the middle coming, the destruction of the temple, is going to be the final judgment. In fact, he kind of says the opposite. He says he wants them to survive in Perea while the middle coming is happening. But then he expects them to emerge from Perea after the judgment is done and then to continue leading the church. So it's best to understand this reference as confidence before the Son of Man as the particular judgment that every person experiences at the moment of death rather than a reference to the second coming. So this finishes the long discourse in Luke 21 about the destruction of the temple. So from here, after this in Luke, we go into chapter 22 and chapter 23, which are the passion narrative. And that's read as a really long section of text on Palm Sunday in year C. But if you want to hear that broken down into smaller sections, you can get access to that through the Patreon page. So if you want to hear the very next section of Luke, have a look at the Patreon page and the link for that is in uh, the episode description. There are some later parts in Luke that you will get to hear as part of the regular podcast, but not the next chapter, chapter 22. So it's a really interesting reading today. I hope you've appreciated studying it this way. It still leaves a lot of questions unanswered. Uh, There are a lot of mysteries here about how, what exactly is Jesus thinking of and when does the text transition and why does Luke present things differently than Matthew and Mark? Uh, Yeah, there's some difficult questions here, but hopefully this has been somewhat helpful for you. Let's finish with three paragraphs from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Paragraph 671. Though already present in his church, Christ's reign is nevertheless yet to be fulfilled with power and great glory by the king's return to earth. The reign is still under attack by the evil powers, even though they have been defeated definitively by Christ's Passover. Paragraph 697. The cloud took Jesus out of the sight of the disciples on the day of his ascension and will reveal him as son of man in glory on the final day of his final coming. So that paragraph there is thinking of that phrase where it says uh, he'll come on the clouds of heaven. And here the catechism says there's a sense in which that is linked to to the ascension and the way Jesus ascended into the clouds there. And certainly that would make sense when you consider that Jesus is ascending into God's space, heaven, And uh, his judgments, the middle coming and the second coming, it's a judgment from heaven to earth. Paragraph 2612, this is the final one. This is the practical one about Jesus teaches us how to pray. In Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand. He calls his hearers to conversion and faith, but also to watchfulness. In prayer, the disciple keeps watch, attentive to him who is and him who comes, in memory of his first coming in the lowliness of the flesh, and in the hope of his second coming in glory. In communion with their master, the disciples' prayer is a battle. Only by keeping watch in prayer can one avoid falling into temptation. So we'll leave it there for today. Please share this podcast around. If you have any questions or feedback on what you've heard today, would love to hear it. Please send an email to logicalbiblestudy at gmail.com or you can leave a voice message. Thanks and we'll see you again tomorrow. Thank you.